please pray with me? Lord, may indeed your wonderful words of life find themselves rooted deeply in our hearts and in our minds that we might be incited to deeper love and that we might truly long to serve you with all of our being. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Some of my seminary friends uh, were bald and would, li- would like to point out to me in this uh, chapter and verse that, you know, this is proof that baldness is a gift from God, a man not covering his head. I don't know if that stands up exegetically. But that's the text that we're going to be, uh, Caleb says yes, all right, I got some takers. Um, this is the text we're going to be looking at today in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And it's interesting that in the church calendar, today happens to be um, the feast of St. Michael and all angels, which actually gets transferred to yesterday because of Sunday, yada, yada, yada. But historically, it's at this on this date. So we're looking both at hierarchy in the celestial areas and hierarchy in the world. We're looking at hierarchy in creation. And you know what? Hierarchy has taken on really negative connotations in our society today. Partly because of politics, partly because of the fact that, that we're Americans and, and equality has become the most important thing to us. But as we're going to see today, equality does not invalidate hierarchy. And hierarchy does not hurt equality. What do I mean? Well, let's look at the text. Think about hierarchy for a minute first, though. Hierarchy is all around us. It's in the animal kingdom. It's in the, the angelic beings. It's in the celestial hierarchy. It's in our organizations. No business or corporation functions well without hierarchy. In fact, it's even in your mind. You can't get away from it. The fact that you choose to do one thing over another, we call it another word, we call it prioritization. But what is it truly? Hierarchy. Saying this needs to be done before that. Or this needs to fall under the order of that. The reason you're here today and not sleeping in bed or at brunch is a function of hierarchy. In today's text, Paul deals with it and it deals with four different things. Number one, he talks about relational order. Number two, he talks about created order. Number three, he talks about our call to obedience. And number four, he talks about giving glory to God through it. So open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you haven't already done so. Let's start with verse 1, or verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything, and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Okay, so far so good, Paul. But we know that that's not going to stay that way in the book of Corinthians here. So let's keep reading. Verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. 
what's going on here in Corinth is that the Christians there are struggling with their newfound identity as part of the church and their newfound identity in Christ. We continue with the theme of rights versus submission that we've been going through this entire passage. And Paul says that affects the sexes. The new covenant's really clear that women are equals in standing to men. Before God, in standing and value, there's no difference. This is a departure from what we see in the old covenant, at least functionally. You see, in the old covenant, think back to the Old Testament in Genesis, only men were circumcised. Women were included via their father or their husband, right? So they fell under the authority of their father or their husband in order to be part of God's people because they were not circumcised. But Jesus makes it clear that that's not the way of the New Testament. That's not the way of the New Covenant. Rather, all are to be baptized into the kingdom of God. All are to be brought equally before God. And Jesus even takes it further. He confronts the local customs of his day and he speaks with women who are considered unclean. Consider John chapter 4. He talks to a Canaanite, a Gentile woman, the Syrophoenician woman she's known at in Matthew 15. And he does the unthinkable in the Jewish culture. He treats Mary and Martha as rabbis in Luke chapter 10, having them sit at his feet, or as students of a rabbi, I'm sorry, having them sit at his feet and teaching them the ways. These things were huge departures from the Old Testament covenant and the Old Testament traditions. So it's interesting that Jesus breaks so many customs and traditions because and for the sake of this new covenant that he's putting into place. But he also seems to maintain a difference of roles in the church. There's 12 apostles tasked with carrying the gospel and given the authority to build the church. They're all men. Jesus' mother, Mary, certainly the most qualified of women, who is at the upper room in the first book of Acts when the Holy Spirit comes down and falls on the apostles, even she doesn't take on the role of authority in the church. Why not, you might ask. Well, in his letter to the Galatians, Paul writes that it's not because women are somehow less valuable regarding salvation, but it's that they enter into the same covenant and serve in a different role. This is Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. So in Christ, writes St. Paul to the Galatian church, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Don't miss the fact that this is an amazing thing, both in Jewish and Roman culture, to be included in the covenant this way. 
It shows that God values all of his children, sons and daughters. It shows that we're not to see women as second-class citizens or tagalongs or add-ons in the New Testament covenant. And this might be what Paul's commending to the church in Corinth here, because that's the subjects he goes into. So in verse 2, when he says, I commend you because you remember in everything and maintain the traditions that I've delivered them to you, we don't know exactly what he's referring to, but he goes on to talk about women in worship, and they're including women in worship, and that's a good thing, says St. Paul. So what's the problem now? Well, it's a misuse of rights and freedoms. First of all, we see men praying with their heads covered, criticized by Paul, in verse 4. We see women praying or prophesying without head coverings, in verse 5. We see men looking like women, and women looking like men, in verses 14 and 15. So you see, the Corinthians have transgressed, in Paul's view, both the relational order of husband and wife and the created order of man and woman. They're acting as if the gospel has obliterated sex. They're acting as if sexual identity is not something created in us, but it's something that doesn't matter anymore in the kingdom of God. Do you see the problem? There's a struggle in their new position in Christ. They don't quite understand their freedoms and their rights. And so Paul needs to set something straight for both men and women here. Because just as the new covenant doesn't change the moral law of the Old Testament, neither does it change the created order of God. The order that God created us in is pleasing to him. It's good. It's established before the fall. It's established before sin comes into the world. And Paul's pointing out that being male or female and acting like men and women and having positions as husbands and wives is all part of that created order, particularly when it comes to worship. Paul begins his argument about order and relationships by appealing to the order in the Trinity itself. Nothing short of his relationship, of of Jesus' relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Look with me again at verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Let's stop there for a moment. So before we get to head coverings, do you see what Paul's doing here? He's saying relationally, there's a relational order to things. That the head of every man, the actual word here is andros, which can be translated man or husband, is Christ. The head of a wife, which is the Greek word is gune, which can be wife or woman, is man. The head of Christ is God. And the word head here is kaphale, literally head. Not some figurative idea of head, but literally the head. But with it comes the idea of origin 
comes the idea of authority. There's another word for authority that Paul could have used here. He could have used the word archon, which is a political term, meaning to have power over. But he deliberately chooses to use the word head, which should make us scratch our heads and ask why. Why Caliphate? Because, or Caliphate? Well, because Paul's trying to get us to understand that this is not about power. This is not about imposing one's will as a pagan tyrant might do. This is about service in leadership. And even that seems to rub us the wrong way when we read it. Many, even in the church, confuse order and equality. Most simply, most simply stated, one's higher rank doesn't make him more important. A king and a homeless man have the same value in God's eyes. A king and a citizen have the same value, or should, in politics. Their dignity is the same. And any person who claims that men are better than women, or women are somehow inherently better than men, is dead wrong and is not following Paul's words. Paul is saying clearly here, in the case of men and women, husbands and wives, that the head, the authority of every man is Christ. To one of higher value, Christ, one of lesser value, man. He's saying that Christ is the head. He's saying the head of a wife or a woman is her husband. Two of equal value, husband and wife being equal. He's saying that the head of Christ is God, both, again, of equal value. When a man submits to Christ, when a wife submits to her husband, when Christ submits to God, it's honoring to God. And it doesn't somehow debase or, or decrease the one who's submitting. Unlike political politics, particularly in the Middle East, where to submit was to be the slave of, St. Paul is saying, no, this is a willful submission. Think about the absurdity of looking at it in the, in the context of power instead of authority, right? Think of if, if Christ is submitting to God, is Christ somehow abasing himself? Is Christ somehow saying that he's not God? No, but in submitting to the will of the Father and praying to the Father, as he does throughout Scripture, throughout the Gospels, Jesus is merely saying that in relation to God, I submit to your will, even though I am God, you see. So we have a model in God himself of submission. Both men and women are created in the image of God, and by themselves, each sex does not show forth the glory of God as much separately as they do together. Turn back to Genesis chapter 1 with me. Let's look right before our reading, and I can read it for you. It's just one verse if you don't want to flip. 127, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And then it continues, male and female, he created them. He creates them both in his image. Okay, so let's move on to head coverings. What's going on with head coverings? 
Well, a little bit of cultural background. In the first century culture, men would not cover their heads unless they were praying to an idol or a pagan god. So oftentimes, and maybe you've seen it in some of those old movies, men, the, the pagan men would take their togas and they would lift them over their heads when they prayed. You ever see that in those old movies? That's actually historically accurate. Okay? So Paul's forbidding men to do that in worship here. And then women at this time wore their heads covered with what was called a, clu- a, a kuluma, a kuluma, or a veil. It wasn't a burqa kind of thing. That, that comes out of Islam, you know, much later. This is an idea of covering one's hair, okay? So almost like where you see a nun having things covered, or, or sometimes you see a shawl wrapped around the head of women, okay? That was the common practice in the first century. The only people that didn't cover their heads as women in the first century were high-ranking mistresses and temple prostitutes to Aphrodite, Okay, so what's Paul saying here? He's saying, don't look like a prostitute. (laughs) He's saying, don't look like a mistress. He's saying, hold on to your dignity, women. You see? Women who shaved their heads in Corinth were even worse. They were those that were convicted of adultery by the court and were forced to shave their heads as a mark of shame. Or... They were pagan, part of pagan cults. And, and there's been research that shows that in Corinth at this time, um, there were pagan cults where women would dress up like men and men would dress up like women. Okay? That was part of kind of the, the, I don't know what else to call it, the role playing of, you know, the, the sex cults of the era. Okay? So if you think there's anything new, the Bible's seen it all, friends. <laughs> all right? Paul's instruction here is both theological and practical. The way that Christian men and women worship, number one, ought to be different from the way that their pagan neighbors worship, or even that their Jewish friends worship. Number two, the way that they worship should not diminish, but rather reflect God's created order and hierarchy. So we continue on here with verses four through seven. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. Do you see what he's going for here? For if a wife, verse 6, will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or to shave her head, let her cover her head. Continuing on, verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he's the image and glory of God. But a woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. All right, there's a lot going on in here. But what does this have to do with worship? Well, Paul wants us to, again, look back to Genesis. So look back at today's reading in Genesis, chapter 2, verse 21 through 24. Then the man said of the woman, I'm sorry, and 
I have the wrong verse here. Verse 21 of chapter 2. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, At last, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So Paul's merely asking them to review Genesis and ask, what's the purpose of woman? Why was woman the first woman? Why was Eve created? Well, there was a lack or privation in creation. Even though what God created was good, even though God's image was present here in this world, somehow it was incomplete. Why is there, why is there a lack? Well, there's a lack here of relationship. There's a missing purpose. Paul's point is that creation's order shows forth woman's purpose. To help, to comfort, to assist, to be man's glory. The Greek word here is doxa, in which we get the word doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. To be man's doxa, his glory, to help him glorify God. To help him glorify God. Look at verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 11. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, verse 11, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For woman was made from man, So man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So in this culture, a wife's hair was her glory. In this culture, a wife's glory was to be given to her husband. Paul's saying that in the created order, the woman is the glory of man, is to be something to be proud of. But worship is not about the woman's glory or the man's glory. It's about God's glory. Therefore, Paul is saying theologically that he objects to women or to men covering their heads because they're supposed to show forth their headship, their head. Literally, it's a symbol. And women are supposed to cover their hair because their glory and the glory of their husband is not the point of worship. It's the point of worship is to glory God and to glory God alone. Oxford scholar David Pryor writes, in herself, in her created being, she is the glory, woman is the glory of man. In covering her hair, she's acknowledging that God must be glorified in Christian worship, not her husband. In the first century, women wearing veils was both this sign and a sign of their morality, a sign that they were, well, women, and a sign that they were women of standing, authority, and virtue. So the veil, while being a first century cultural thing, is not there for just cultural reasons, according to Paul, but rather it's bespeaking a deeper truth, bespeaking a deeper reality. 
to the fixed nature of men and women, which is just assumed here. Paul would not have that order of creation be disturbed. There's no gender fluidity in the Bible. God creates male and female in his image equally. Both receive salvation through baptism. Both are fed at his table. Both come to him with boldness clothed in Christ. But each serves in marriage and in the church with different purposes. Each gender presents God differently to the world and to one another. Men are present. Men are present and show forth the headship of God. They show forth the fatherliness of God. They show forth the authority of God. And they show forth the submission of God to come and love us so much to sacrifice themselves for us. God who did that for us. Men are supposed to show forth that. Women are present in Jesus' Christness, in his anointing, in his obedience, in his equality with the Father, and yet his submission to the Father's will. And they also show forth the Holy Spirit, who is the advocate and guide, standing next to, standing with us. Both are necessary. Both reflect God. Both are tied to creation. Both reflect the relationships in the Trinity. There's different roles for men and women, but those roles change with different cultures. What's right in the first century is not necessarily what's right in the 21st century. What goes on in Nigeria is not necessarily what goes on in the United States. These things change with time and place, but the thing that doesn't change is the essence, the substance, the fact that God has created us different and has given us different purposes. How those purposes get lived out change. Look, men and women aren't any different from angels. There are seraphim angels whose job it is to to praise God in his throne room. There's cherubim angels whose job is to guard the throne room. There's archangels whose job is to convey immense messages to mankind like we see with with, uh, Gabriel bringing the message to, to Mary in the Annunciation, right? They have their jobs, and so it is with men and women. And we can look below us into the animal order and see the same thing, right? This shouldn't be mind-blowing, but to our culture, for some reason, it is. We're all created with a purpose. Whether married or not, men or women, we're dependent upon each other. St. John Chrysostom writes, each one, the man and the woman, is the cause of the other because God being the cause of all. So each are important. When we function in our God-given sexes and purposes, we help one another and we help to glorify God. When we try to glorify ourselves or look like the opposite sex or act like the opposite sex, or dress immodestly as to draw attention to ourselves, particularly in worship, it's a distraction to God's glory. Instead, we're to strive, not, we're to strive to live into how God created us, to worship God with all of our being, as the old prayer book says, to honor thee with our substance, with all of who we are and all of who we were created to be. When we embrace how God created us, we seek to do his will in how he created us. 
just as the angels seek to do his will. But just as the angel Lucifer sought to rebel, thought to, sought to throw off hierarchy, sought to put himself above others, so when we strive for power, when we strive to have dominion that's not rightly ours, when we look for authority that God didn't create us for, we become monsters. We become monsters. We dishonor God and his church. It's not easy for anybody to follow the will of God, friends, for men or women. That's what we're called to do. So in our culture today, this is really confusing, isn't it? First of all, we have to say, no, male and female are fixed things. These are things created by God. That hasn't changed, never will. You might delusionally think that it's changed. You might be sick in your thought, thinking that it's changed. But that's not reality. That's an illusion. It's a trap. It's something that the devil has laid as a snare to hurt you. When we pit men and women against each other, that too is a trap. When we say that one is superior to the other, when we say that we should struggle against each other, that too is a trap and a snare of the devil. We shouldn't lose ourselves to competition between sexes or try to obliterate them. Rather, we should see them in harmony as the Lord created them. So practically speaking, in the first century, the veil was the symbol of authority, verse 10. But it was a reminder for women that both she, that she rather, was both under authority and both had authority. Because notice, what are women doing in this passage? They're praying and prophesying in the church, do you see? So Paul is affirming them in their standing in Christ. But he's reminding them that they're still under authority. And until the 1960s, it was traditional in the church for women to cover their heads. Some of you might remember that. Is that something we ought to return to? I'm not going to tell you to. I think that's a personal choice. I have a friend in Pittsburgh whose wife does. She's the, uh, she, he's a deacon and she's the matushka, the mother in the church. And she wears a veil to church and has started that tradition there. You know, there's women here that have come to me and said, I'd like to wear a veil in church. Would that be okay? I've said, sure. I mean, you'll look weird in our culture today, but yeah, if, if you feel convicted to do that, that'd be okay. It's a personal choice. Because it's not the thing, it's what lies underneath the thing that's important here. Practically speaking, how do we live this out? Well, I think in marriage, men need to treat women as the glory of mankind. This is not Al Bundy of Married with Children, okay? Or Archie Bunker, all right? Those are stupid caricatures that actually do harm to the idea of hierarchy. Women need to honor their husbands. Real practical way in this is not to dishonor your spouse while you're out in public. You shouldn't correct your spouse in front of other people. That's wrong. It hurts them. In worship, keep our focus on God. Don't distract 
from the worship of God. You know, when I went to Europe, and actually Brigitte just came back from Italy, I'd, I'd be curious to know if it's still this way. You couldn't go into houses of God, uh, cathedrals, churches, whatever. You, men couldn't enter them in shorts, and women were not allowed to enter them without having their shoulders covered. Do you know why? Is, that, is it still done that way? I mean, even in secular Europe, friends, why is that? Because these things show dishonor to God and draw away from the glory of what you're looking at in the church, which is supposed to point to God. Women and men, be modest. Be modest. Don't detract from God's glory. Honor one another. Love one another. Think through what today's applications of this passage are. Roles change. But God's given, God's God-given purposes of those roles do not. So while the roles might change, while it might look different today, what should it look like? How should we honor one another? How should we obey what Paul's saying? No matter what your interpretation, let us embrace our sex as God created it. Let us glorify God with our being. And friends, let us honor him with the angels in our substance. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.